years ago, one of the great pastors and theologians was on his deathbed and he was surrounded by family and friends who had known him for most of his life. And as he was dying, he was heard to utter these words, Lord, forgive me my sins. And they did not hear anything from him for a while, and they thought he had died. And then they heard him whisper, especially the little ones. There are some sins that in our minds are egregious. Killing, stealing, adultery, and the likes. But for us, the majority of sins are the little ones, the more respectable ones. And James, in chapter 2, deals with one of the little sins that perhaps fly under the radar, ones that we do not give serious attention to even within our lives. The sin of prejudice or partiality. Now, as you recall, James has been reminding his readers of the test of living faith. What is it that constitutes a living, healthy, vibrant faith. And in chapter 1, he reminds them that those who have this living, vibrant faith will reveal it by their response to the word of God. That they will hear and receive and respond to the word of God, that they would not be mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. He goes on to say that this true religion consists of caring for widows and for orphans and for keeping oneself unspotted, unstained, un, unstained by the world. But in chapter 2, he deals with this subject of the sin of partiality, this which falls among the little sins in our own eyes. It, I believe that the writer, first of all, deals with the prohibition of the sin of partiality. He then tells us of the antidote to the sin of partiality and then of the danger of the sin of partiality. We're going to take a look at these in this order. He begins in chapter 2, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. It is essentially a command against partiality. And this term that he uses, this term partiality, means to lift up the face, to look up to. It's a metaphor, a striking metaphor, to look up to another person. And therefore it is contrary to looking down upon somebody else. James says, my brethren, my brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. And he makes it plain that it is incompatible for believers to trust in the Lord, to hold this faith, to believe in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
whom he declares is the Lord of glory, the one who is high and awesome, the one who dwells in absolute splendor, the Lord who is the King of glory, the one that John sees in the book of Revelation, whose eyes are blazing fire, whose hair is as white as snow, the one from whose mouth comes a two-edged sword. This is the Lord of glory, the one who dwells in absolute splendor. He says, we are not to hold the faith of this one who is the glorious Lord with partiality. We are not to lift up our face to others and to lower our faces to others. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So there is, first of all, this prohibition against partiality, against prejudice, against looking favorably upon others because of some quality that they possess and looking down upon others because of qualities that they do not possess. It is, in fact, partiality here. It is, it is to make a decision about someone based upon external factors, such as their economic and social standing in the community. He says that that ought not to be. We are not to hold, we are not to exhibit our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time be partial in our treatment of others. What he does then is that he offers an illustration of this discrimination, this prejudice, this partiality that he prohibits. In verse 2, he says, here's an example of what I'm talking about when I command you that you are not to be partial or deal with others with partiality. He says, for if there comes into your assembly a man with gold, with gold rings in final apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit there at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the, he uses this example. It is, it is a hypothetical example. But here's a worship service in progress. A rich man walks in and you know he is rich because his fingers are decked with rings, perhaps golden rings. And you know that because he's dressed in the garment of the wealthy and in the first century, purple was what they wore. The rich would wear a purple robe. And so this man would have come into the service, he would have been dressed with gold rings, he had a purple robe. And immediately, he is sized up as a person of importance, a person of prominence and of weight. And so he's offered a good place. He's given the best seat in the house. Because he has the trappings of power and of wealth. But here comes another man, a poor man. You know that he's poor just by looking at the clothes he wears. He's dressed in shabby garments. He's not offered the best seat in the house. He's told he's given a choice. You stand here or sit at my feet. It's really a false choice because... Either way you cut it, he's going to be demoted. The distinction between these two men boil down to how much money they are perceived to possess. One is perceived to possess 
great amount of it, and the other, none or little. James then is condemning this partiality that judges people because of their external possessions or the lack thereof. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, but to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here. John, James says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's saying that by so demoting this poor man and promoting the rich man, you have shown a divided heart. You have shown partiality and you are judges with evil thoughts. Why? Because you consider one man to be more important than the other simply based on what they possess. Now after the prohibition against partiality and after the illustration in the story of the rich man and the poor man, James explains why partiality, discrimination, favoritism is evil. And he will do that in the next verses. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The first reason he gives is that favoritism, partiality is wrong for it contradicts God's attitude to the poor. James indicates that God treats the poor graciously. That God looks on the poor and God chose the poor of this world that they may be rich in faith, in spiritual qualities, in spiritual gifts, and particularly in the gift of faith. This is the truth of us who are Christians. Paul can remind the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 29, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise among the flesh, not many mighty, nor many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty, and the base or the lowly things of the world, so that, and the things that are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And what is he saying? He's saying to treat the poor with scant regard contradicts God's treatment of the poor. For God has chosen those who had nothing and were deserving of nothing to be rich in faith. And moreover, not only to be rich in faith, but that they might indeed be heirs of the kingdom. What is he saying? He's saying that the poor who are despised, that among them God has chosen these who are poor, not only to be rich in faith, but to inherit his kingdom. If God, therefore, so cares for the poor, it is wrong, and especially the poor within the community of faith, it is wrong then for Christians to treat them with regard. Now, someone may claim that God is, in fact, discriminating against the rich by favoring the poor. 
And that is to miss the point. For James is not suggesting that God shows no discrimination because the, the whole language of election is God's discriminating, God choosing. But rather the point here is that God does not discriminate between men on the basis of their worth and value in his sight. God does not, in, in simple terms, look upon someone who is wealthy and determine that that individual deserves heaven. If that were the case, none of us, or most of us, would never ever enter the kingdom of God, because we are not rich. And so James is saying that God gives grace and mercy to those who are poor. This is God's attitude to those who deserve nothing, and therefore for them to discriminate against the poor is, of course, to contradict God's own treating of the thing of those who are vulnerable and in need. In verses 5 to 7, not only does he tell us that this is this action of discriminating against the poor, of being partial and discriminating against the poor as, as that which contradicts God's treatment of the poor, but in verses 5 to 7, he will point out another reason. He's saying that to, to favor the rich ab above the poor is absurd. Is absurd. In verse 6 he says, You have dishonored the poor man by demoting him and promoting the other person because he's rich. You have dishonored him. You have not treated his person with sufficient weight and regard. And then he shows how partiality against the poor is absurd. He says, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. James lives in, lived in a time when even among the Jews, there were many who were taking possession of the land of others and driving poor people into further poverty. Not only so, they were dragging them to court. They would demand payment of rent and mortgage on the land that was being used by the poor, and when the poor could not fork up the money, they would drag them to the court, and because they were powerful and had money, they could indeed influence justice in their favor, and so that they receive a favorable verdict. James is saying that here they are, these believers, they are paying attention to the rich. They are favoring them above the poor. But the very ones that they are favoring are those who oppress them, who have no regard for justice. But if that is not absurd, this is even more absurd because in verse 7 it says, Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? Many of these who are rich have no regard not only for people, but no regard for Christ. They speak ill or evil of the name of Christ. Perhaps they mock him. Perhaps they scoff at his crucifixion or even at the fact of his resurrection. But whatever it is, James does not tell us how they blaspheme the name of Christ. But whatever they do, they treat him with contempt. And James is saying, here you are, you are exalting people who are treating the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name by which you are called, they are treating that name with contempt, but nevertheless you are giving them the highest honor. 
And James tells us then that this is absurd. And he makes it clear that to show partiality is against God's treatment of the poor and it is absurd. And so we see the condemnation of partiality. But now in verse 8, we see something of the antidote for the sin of partiality. Where James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. The antidote to this favoritism of the rich above the poor, James says, is the royal law. Now what is the royal law? There are those who think the royal law is the law that comes from the king, that God is the king. But if that is the case, then all of God's laws are to be seen as royal. Because all of them come from God who is king. No, I think the royal law, as you would note, refers to the law that is supreme. The law that is chief. And in this instance, the royal law that James commends is as supreme is the, is the law of love. This is the same law that Jesus sets forth as the summary of God's law. Do you remember the question that was posed to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And our Lord Jesus said to the questioner, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. The Apostle Paul also saw love as the supreme commandment, as the royal law. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Romans chapter 13, 8 to 10. You know that when James commends the royal law, that it is love to which he refers, for the continuation of verse 18 is in fact a quotation from the Old Testament book of Leviticus in chapter 19 and verse 18. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and he quotes now from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. That the antidote to prejudice and partiality and favoritism is to love one's neighbor. It is not to discriminate against him. And James says, he who does this does well. Now, instruction then from the word of God is that there must be a valuing of one another, a sacrificing for those who are humble and lowly, who seem to have nothing, position, status, or Anything else of merit in the world. 
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. He says, the converse is true. That is, if you do not fulfill the royal law of love, but show partiality, you commit sin. You commit sin. And are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So that where there is a showing of partiality, he says this is sin. Prejudice in whatever form is sin. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall not keep the whole law, that is, he does not love, whoever does not keep the whole law, and, or for whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, is guilty of all. And he's arguing that the law really is a unity. He explains this. He says, if, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if we do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. One, one cannot therefore say, I've kept the law. I'm a murderer, but I have not committed adultery. Therefore, I have kept the law. James says that the law hangs together. The law stands together as a unit. And one breaks the law because one transgresses against the command of the lawgiver himself. And so he says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And so he's saying that the, the antidote to prejudice in its whatever form, whether favoring the rich above the poor, is love, the royal law of love. And not to love and to show prejudice is to become a transgressor and therefore to break the law of God because it is sin against the lawgiver. In the concluding verses of the paragraph, that is verses 11, or rather verse 12 and 13, he shows something now, not only of the prohibition against the sin of partiality and the antidote, which is the royal law of love, but now he says something of the seriousness of the sin of partiality. He says, so speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. James uses the imperative. So speak and so do. In all your actions, he says, live your life and particularly in the relationship with others from the standpoint that one day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. He means that we are not then to be prejudiced precisely because we will give an account to God for how we have treated others. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He reminds them that judgment is on the basis of our works. It is true that we are saved by the grace of God, but we will be judged on the basis of how we live. He tells us that we will be judged by the law of liberty. By the law of liberty. Not talking now about the Mosaic law, 
but really about that same law that is planted in the heart. That law which he talks and calls in chapter 1, the word of truth, that which abides within us. The law of liberty, the, the, the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ really is the law of liberty, that which liberates us from sin, that which reveals the mind of God to us as through the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be judged by the words of Christ that he has given to us. And by the way, let's be clear that the words of Christ not only are not, are not just those in the red letter that we have in our, many of our Bibles, it's all that is written in the New Testament is given to us by the apostles and by the early church. And so we will judge by the law of liberty. He reinforces this warning by saying that judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. So that if we are to live with partiality, not to care for the poor, then if we have treated the poor without mercy, we can expect no mercy from God. And yet, James does not end the paragraph on a negative note. For he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. By that he means this, that those who have shown mercy, especially to the poor, and have themselves received the mercy of God, may expect to find mercy and judgment when they stand before the Lord. He is not saying that if we are merciful to the poor, that earns us the mercy of God at the judgment. But he's merely implying that if we are merciful to the poor, it is because we have come to know the mercy of God, and God in his mercy at the judgment seat will show us mercy, that his mercy will triumph over judgment. My friends, all of this is important. Because you and I must first of all place value on people and not treat them with partiality. We tend to judge human beings, one another, on appearances. We like people who are successful. We don't, we, I, I think if we're going to be really honest, we don't like people who look like losers. We like winners. I, 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 I'm sorry to repeat these illustrations, but I, I find them so apt. You know, this, I think Leon Morris who tells the story of, you know, this fellow goes into a restaurant in Australia and he orders crab. And he sees the, the waitress comes along with this crab and one of his claws is missing. And he calls him back and he says, well, what's wrong with this crab? Where is the claw? And so the waitress comes over and explains. Crabs are very vicious beasts. When they are being transported, they fight among themselves. And in the process, some of them lose a claw or two. And the guy says, go get the winner. <laughs> we like winners. That's the reality. People who look like they're not going anywhere, we don't want to be around them. Now, we may not want to be honest about that, but that's true. We look down at people who don't seem to succeed. When we were growing up, you know, we, we had pictures on our walls of hockey players and football players. We didn't choose the worst people, the worst players to put on our walls. Who wants to be like them? We want to be around winners. 
We want to be successful. And if our parents pointed us to people in life that we should imitate, it's always people who have done well. Warren Buffett and so on. We are giving illustrations of all the people who have made it and have gotten somewhere and made them something of themselves. And we're living in a world, in a society where we are, where we are so enculturated that we elevate people because of their wealth and status. We tend to demean those who are poor, who are smelly, whose clothing are not as good as those that we have. Our problem is not that we just discriminate against poor people. We discriminate against people of color, people who are different in culture and color. Again, if I may use Australia as another illustration, again, I'm one that you've heard before. This is one of those problems that it is believed cannot be fixed. The, the, the prejudice which concerns race and people who are different in appearance. The story was told of a, an Australian school bus driver who was driving a, a group of kids. Some of them were aboriginals and whites. They were going off on an excursion. And as he drove along, he heard them complaining and quarreling because the, the, black, the, uh, the black kids didn't want to mix with the white kids, the white kids didn't want to mix with them, and he, he got tired of it after a while. He stopped the bus and he says, all of you get off the bus. And he lined them up. And he says, now, there are on this bus no black kids and no white kids. You're all, guess what, green. <laughs> Say it after me. We are all green. And so all the kids said, we are all green. And he set them back on the bus. They went back, took their seats. And he had fixed, he thought he had fixed the racial problem in, in Australia. He drove along merrily. And as he was driving along, he heard a lot of grumbling behind him in the back. And he couldn't understand. And so he listened carefully. And all he could hear was dark green on this side, <laughs> light green on that side. And the moral of the story is that you can't really solve racial problems. But you and I need to know that we are to value one another not on the basis of what we look like, where we come from, and our cultural distinctives. And let me be clear. If you are white and you have a particular culture, that culture is to be celebrated. And if you are Chinese and you have a culture that is long and is illustrious, it is to be celebrated. But we must never use any of our cultural distinctives to blow ourselves up and to deflate others. You see, our problem is not just that we have racial biases. And let me be very careful. careful. I'm going to be very careful here, but let me, let me say this. Racial prejudice cuts across all lines. Let's be clear that we see it in America, we hear it in America, and somehow in Canada we think we are somewhat immune. But racial prejudice is everywhere. And it's not only that whites are bigoted against blacks, but blacks are bigoted against whites. This is a reality. There are stereotypes that are, that are, that are enduring in our communities. And the fundamental problem is, as a, a species, as a race, 
we are rotten to the core in our hearts. You see, it's not that we just look down on other people because of what color they have. We, we look down on people because of the education that they lack. What part of the city they live in. This thing is how thin or how large they may be. We discriminate against people for a host of reasons. Because, you know, because if somebody is nine foot tall, we can never be happy with them taller than we are. We have got to be ten foot. And if they are twenty, we are going to be twenty-one. Because ultimately, we want to be above others. The solution to all forms of partiality and discrimination is to remember that we have been loved by the Lord. That fundamentally we were nothing but God chose those who were poor that they may be rich in faith. That God did not look upon us because somehow we were attractive to him. He showed mercy and grace to us in our rottenness. We were people who were despicable in his sight. We were sinners and under his condemnation. And yet, though we were so unlovely, he showed his mercy and grace and love in not only choosing us out of a larger mass, but he also chose us that we may be rich in faith and that we might become inheritors of his kingdom. The reality of God's mercy to us must cause us to be merciful to others and to value them as important. Paul says, do not set your minds on high things, but associate with the humble. And here the word humble simply means people of low social status. How do we treat people who are on the street? How do we treat people who seek to get money off us? You know, I'm not arguing that we've got to be unwise. I'm not arguing that we should fuel and fund the addiction of those who are around us. How, how do we deal with them? Do we value them as people and see that behind the illness there is a, there's a soul to be saved? There's a person to be loved? Do we just re respond to the smell of their clothing? Do we just run away from them because we feel that they have mental issues with which we cannot deal? Or do we find some way to welcome them, to make them feel lovely? To feel that there is hope in this world? We need to see people as made in the image of God. And even though it is marred by sin, they're still nevertheless God's creatures. What we are looking for then is genuine love that seeks the best that seeks the good of others, genuine love that values man and woman made in the image of God. You see, these little sins of partiality get swept under the rug, gets overlooked. But we must remember that one day we will stand before him. And therefore we are to respond as those who have been shown mercy. And as we do that, we're testifying that we know the Lord.
But one day as we live out the Christian life, we know that when we see him, we will also know that mercy will triumph over judgment. May God help us to think carefully through how we relate to one another. May we treat one another with the reverence and the respect and the regard that they deserve made in the image of God. May we do so because we have received divine love. And may we do so in the hope and expectation that as we show mercy, we prove that we have received mercy and one day we'll receive God's mercy which triumphs over judgment.